Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday. Happy hump day to you and yours. Fantastic show planned for you today. It's Wednesday. We'll have some Tennessee Harmony. Pastor Anthony Walker is going to be here with me in studio all show. We'll transition into Tennessee Harmony in 30, 40 minutes after we talk with Steve Kim and talk some sports with Steve Kim. I want to go back in on the Lamar Jackson topic. I want to talk about Tom Brady and Todd Bowles. I want to talk about Dak Prescott and how the media seems to be overreacting to Dak's one great game. And not, not, because Dak has great games. Dak, Dak's just a little bit inconsistent. We'll talk about that. We'll do an approval rating on Dak Prescott with Steve Kim. Uh, and then we'll transition the second half of the show to a conversation that, that I told you guys on Monday we would talk about Martin Luther King and his legacy and his impact. Uh, and we would do that with Virgil Walker kind of laying the table. Virgil's written a critique of Dr. King's legacy that's pretty powerful, pretty thought-provoking, uh, pretty uncomfortable. Uh, we'll let him lay a foundation for that conversation. Anthony and I will chime in, and then we'll hear from Shamika, Delano, Dave Shannon, and just have a big, and then we'll bring Virgil back and let him put a bow on the conversation. So uh, buckle up. It's going to be an awesome, awesome show. We're going to start the awesomeness uh, by talking about my good friends at Preborn. Last year, because of you, we saw over 50,000 babies' lives saved because of you. Thank you to all who made this possible. This year, we're shooting for 70,000 babies. We like to call them Blaze Babies, and we're building a village. Will you join us? Well, we have only just begun. This dark world is zealous for blood of babies, even proposing abortion after birth. But in the midst of this darkness, there is a light that shines, and that's preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their clinics save 150 babies' lives. When a mother with an unplanned pregnancy sees her precious baby on an ultrasound and hears that heartbeat, her baby's chance of survival is more than doubled. Preborn receives no government funding, so their clinics are completely dependent on us, the pro-life community. To donate, just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. 100% of your donation will go to saving babies. One ultrasound is just $28, less than most dinners. Get involved today. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or donate securely the way that I like to, preborn.com slash Jason. That's preborn.com slash Jason. Guys, you know, this is, was our mission in 2022. It's our mission in 2023. Those of us that are fearless soldiers, we need you donating to Preborn. Continue to send me uh, the inspiring emails, letting me know that you donated. I love to get those, Fearless Blaze Show at gmail.com. It's very inspiring when I get those emails. Let me know that you have contributed and supported Preborn. Brings me joy, gets me excited. Helps me plan a great show for you guys. Preborn.com slash Jason, pound 250, say the keyword baby. All right, uh, Steve Kim is on deck. And Steve, I wanna start by talking with you about Lamar Jackson. And I wanna give you a little context to this conversation. I wrote a column uh, for the Blaze. Didn't do it today as a mono because uh, you know we, we've talked about Lamar earlier in the week, but I, I really broke down something related to 
uh, RG3 and on Monday night football on the Monday night countdown show, he started caping up for uh, Lamar Jackson. And, and he said that the conversation about Lamar Jackson has been weaponized because there's rumors and speculation. What did he mean with an Instagram post? We read the Instagram post on, on Monday where it sounded like he's taking a lot of passive aggressive shots at the Baltimore Ravens organization. They need to pour into me. Well, let, well, let me read it exactly. When you have something good, you don't play with it. You don't take chances losing it. You don't neglect it. When you have something good, you pour into it. You appreciate it because when you take care of something good, that good thing takes care of you too. I argue <laughs> that Lamar needs to read this Instagram post to himself. And then he needs to read it to Robert Griffin III because the Baltimore Ravens have, are something good for Lamar Jackson. And perhaps he should pour into the Baltimore Ravens and perhaps he should take care of his relationship with the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah. Perhaps he should block out all the noise and all the people that are telling him he's being exploited by the Ravens and he should be uh, paid like the same as Deshaun Watson or these other people and should realize he's a unique talent. That organization has gone all in on him, built an offense, turned their entire organization over to him. He's got a good thing worth protecting and worth pouring into. But I argue in my piece and I argue today that I don't know if I really believe Lamar Jackson wrote this Instagram mm -hmm. post. I think his mother did. Ugh. This sounds like something taken from a Tyler Perry script or something taken from the movie Waiting to Exhale. This sounds feminine. I'm a victim. You owe me. You need to pour into me. Blah, blah, blah. The whole mentality to me sounds feminine. It's consistent with the culture we have, this worship of women that we have. And, and this whole belief that if you're a man, if you're not pouring everything into a woman, you're doing something wrong and you owe them. And they've been so good to you, you need to be better to them. I'm not so sure if, if, if that's the right mentality. It's a matriarchal mindset that I think is blowing up in Lamar's face. I wanna play you before I invite you into the conversation. I wanted to play you uh, RG3 talking with Booger McFarland, Steve Young, Adam Schefter, and, and I think Susie Colbert. Let's, let's play the clip. Narrative about Lamar Jackson that people are weaponizing, saying he didn't go out there on the field because he wasn't one to put on a, on a line for his teammates or he, he wants a new contract. I just feel like that's wrong. Well, and what about this comment that you just tweet? I mean, what do you, how do you make of that then? Yeah, I mean, what, what I'm What's saying. What's he saying? What, what Lamar, I can't speak for Lamar Jackson, but what I can he, say. He can speak for himself. He, he says you don't appreciate for himself. He, but I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is, listen, he's not healthy. That's the bottom line. You just listened to Marlon Humphrey right. talk about how Lamar's limping around the facility. He's not healthy enough to go play. So people weaponizing that and trying to make it about something else, I just feel it's wrong. Well, Lamar Jackson has a grade two PCL. Why is injury. everything about Lamar that's coming from Lamar is saying, I'm not happy. Well, I'm that, being neglected. That's saying, I'm not healthy. I, I'm, not, I'm being neglected. He's saying that I'm not healthy. 
He's saying I'm not. I'm and, no. and that message said, right there, I'm being I neglected. What I see is and you should appreciate me. And if you don't, I might not be able to Listen, help. Listen, guys, I've got the Spoke, personal. Got? I've got the personal experience of Understand. playing with no ACL and no LCL. I went out there, put it on the line for my brothers and the team. No one was there to no, no, tell you're, you're me, confusing. "Hey, you can't do this." It's not confusing issue. that he's hurt. We believe that he's hurt. Yes. Why is he adding fuel to the fire? We understand he's hurt. Mm. We stipulate to that fact. He's adding fuel. Why to the fire. is he adding to the fire? Go ahead. Hmm. RG3 is mm. not a journalist. He, he's a jock and and he's a friend of Lamar's and I get it. But he doesn't understand what what journalists are paid to do. Analyze the situation. If, if Lamar wants to put this tweet out there or Instagram post, people are going to interpret it. And if you use the wording, you don't neglect it. When you have something good, you pour into it. You appreciate it. People have every right to interpret that as a passive-aggressive shot at the Baltimore Ravens. It, it, no one's weaponizing anything against Lamar. People are questioning, and, and like real questions need to be asked, and, and legitimate ones like, Lamar, you're trying to get one of the biggest deals in sports history, certainly in NFL history, and your mother is running point on it. Is this the path? Others have chosen when they want a record contract, or do they hire an agent? Do they allow their mother to run point on a mega contract situation? These questions need to be asked. If you legitimately care about Lamar, you would be asking him, are you getting the best representation for yourself to get what you're looking for, or have you allowed and put your mother and yourself in a difficult situation. Uh, Steve, I'll let you fire first. Uh, the, I guess with uh, RG3, now that he's put away his DeMar Hamlin jersey, uh, what's he going to do next? Wear a knee brace backwards outside of his slacks the next time he's on? Because I just, just like, <laughs> give me a break. How dare a football team and football fans expect a football player to get this? Play. And I get it. If he's hurt, he's hurt. But about that, Instagram message. I don't know who wrote it, but I don't think it's cryptic. I mean, what do you think he was talking about? His Pokemon card collection? Uh, I mean, it's obvious where he's getting at. Uh, he, he feels neglected, and maybe he does, but this is the hypocrisy of athletes, and I'm not saying Lamar Jackson's been guilty of this. When athletes say, we play for your entertainment. No, you don't. You play as a profession, which means you get paid for your services. Okay? And when athletes say, after leaving teams, signing free agent deals, leaving behind cities that had really been loyal to them, they always say, hey, 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 look, this is just a business. This is just a business. I love the fans, but I got to look out for me. It's just a business. Right. So if it's just a business, which it is, why doesn't the business owner in this case, being the Baltimore Ravens, have the right to say, right, and we are protecting our business interest because of the recent track record of injuries, his style of play, the Ravens have a right to say, wait a minute, we are going to pay you a, a, a nine-figure contract, but we're not going to guarantee 100% of it. it. It's almost like people are taking this dogmatic position that you either pay Lamar every single dime guaranteed like Deshaun Watson, or the Ravens are offering zero. It, it, I don't think of this as a zero-sum game. I think people are completely botching that aspect of it, and they're misrepresenting what is really taking place. 
But once again, I will go back to that great line from John Matuzic in North Dallas 40. Every time I call it a game, you say it's a business. Every time I say it's a business, you call it just a game. Um, again, Lamar Jackson has a position, which is absolutely his right as a businessman. But the business, being the Baltimore Ravens, they have a right to also have their position. Steve, five quarterbacks this past offseason got reworked new deals that guaranteed them mm -hmm. a minimum at Matt Stafford, $130 million, yep. all the way up to Deshaun Watson at $230 million guaranteed. Mm. Matt Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, and Deshaun Watson. All five of them. Mm. None of those five teams made the playoffs. None of those five teams had a winning record. You can't tell me the Baltimore Ravens aren't sitting there saying <laughs> five teams just were in the position we were in. And, and when you start talking about Aaron Rodgers, that's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. You start talking about Russell Wilson's, won a Super Bowl, played in another Super Bowl, great reputation. Uh, that thing blew up in Denver's face. Uh, Kyler Murray, just a bad deal all around. Mm. Deshaun Watson obviously has the off-field problems. Matt Stafford just won the Rams of Super Bowl. None of it worked out for any of them, and we're all expecting the Baltimore Ravens just to turn around, looking at what happened last offseason, and say, you know, let's just give Lamar the money. We know he's been injured the last two years. We, we know we've turned this organization upside down for him, and we're not 100% sure if he's going to be a guy that consistently wins playoff games for us because he's still not an elite pocket passer. I don't blame the Ravens for having reservations, and I don't understand how the media, the media that's supposed to be journalistically sent, it's like we can't even have this conversation without someone pretending that Lamar Jackson, who's made $32 million so far in his five-year NFL career is some great victim of an organization that has poured into him incredibly over the past five years. And the guy, they're putting their best foot forward and the dude is sending his mother in there to be his agent to put everybody in a bad spot. Well, it's, it's like we can't give Lamar Jason, good advice because if you give him good advice, you're racist. Oh, hold on, exactly. There are members of the NFL media who have no other options. They have no safety net. So they have to toe that line of pandering to the public. Jason, every time we talk about Lamar Jackson and don't call him the Johnny Unitas 2.0, the comments, you know the comments we get. Oh, they're caping or they're racism. Jason hates all black men. Steve Kim doesn't like, you know what? It's a childish argument. And my view is this. None of these or some of these media members do not have the guts to just call it the way it is. Call it the way it is, and you could have a position that Lamar is very good, but he's also very flawed. And I see this a lot, though, in corporate legacy media. Writers and journalists and television personalities saying stuff, not that they believe, but stuff they believe will get retweets and likes. Knowing in their own heart and mind, they don't actually believe that. And, but 
To your point about the guaranteed contracts and how they have not worked out, specifically for the quarterbacks that are in the first half of their careers or entering their prime, this is going to be interesting, guys, to see what happens in the next few weeks. Let's say Brock Purdy, who I'm beginning to believe in a lot more and more, as a third-string quarterback, as Mr. Irrelevant, let's just say hypothetically he leads the Niners to a Super Bowl on a minimum contract. I wonder if the league says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This game is so quarterback-friendly. We have a system in place or the style of game nowadays, which is so rigged against the defense. Do we really need to have one player at any position eat up this much of the salary cap if the Niners, who, to be fair, are loaded, especially on defense, well, actually both sides of the ball, if Brock Purdy wins the Super Bowl, I legitimately wonder, is he be the beginning of the market correction as it relates to quarterback salaries? I think you raise a good point. I think that you have to have the right scenario. What the 49ers have is a great defense yes and an offensive wizard head coach you put that combination together you can get away with it so you go find you an offensive wizard head coach and a great defense and now you can plug and play a quarterback most take the kansas city chiefs they don't have a great defense they need patrick mahomes they need Andy, Andy Reid's wizardry as a play caller. They don't have a great defense. If the Chiefs had a great defense, yeah, maybe Patrick Mahomes is less right. valuable. If the but, Buffalo but, but, but Bills Jason, have a great defense. But, Jason, Mahomes is legitimately considered the number one player in the league. So let's throw him out. Because no one's actually saying whatever his salary is, which I didn't almost sign like a half-million-dollar contract. No one is yeah. saying he's overpaid. Mm -hmm. People are actually making the argument – he might be underpaid. So I, I wouldn't even include him in this discussion. Josh Allen. Josh mm -hmm. Allen. Yeah. If he had a great defense in Buffalo. And but but you know, and I I, I think Sean McDermott comes from the defensive side of yeah. football, not the offensive side. And and so I just think the right combination is working in San Francisco. And if look I, 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 if well, Dallas is overpaying for Dak, but I don't think they're getting elite, elite level quarterback play. They did last week, but you know it's a little bit inconsistent. But Dallas has a very good defense and and a quarterback who's more than serviceable, well, and they got a shot at winning yeah, the Jason, Super Bowl. I'll be fair about this. If Lamar Jackson was on the Niners, that would be an offensive machine. They might score forty points a game with all that eye candy they do and getting the quarterback out. But here's the issue. If Lamar got paid what he wanted to, you'd have to strip apart that team. You may not be able to get a McCaffrey. You may not be able to re-sign a Dabo. So, again, the budget matters. Like, we all get it. Quarterbacks are going to be paid very, very well. More handsomely than any player on that roster, for the most part, by the second contract if they are your quarterback. But you better be careful. There's a threshold here where it's too much of a good thing. Because those quarterbacks that are in their first rookie contract, like a Russell Wilson a decade ago, they are an unbelievable value because they allow you, from a roster perspective, to really load up the team and get some real depth. But once those guys start getting paid $100 million, $150, $200 million, 
and they're eating up a lot of that cap space, guess what? You have to drop other pieces to make room for that salary. Anthony, I want to bring Anthony into this conversation because Anthony's a huge sports fan, maybe knows as much sports as, as you, Steve. Uh, but, but there's part of this conversation that, that, that I brought into this, and particularly in my column, where I'm, I'm looking at Lamar Jackson try to get one of the biggest contracts in football history, and his mother's running point. Mm-hmm. And, and, and no, no one has the courage to say to him, Lamar, biggest contract, you know, rookie contract when the, the parameters are all kind of set up and you're just slotted. It's like, I got that you got away with that. But mm-hmm. now you're trying to get your second contract. Mm-hmm. And, and who, who knows? Take Kyler Murray, whoever his agent was. I think Todd France or whoever it was. They got this man, his contract, after his third year. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because he's hired one of the best agents. They manipulated that situation. He gets overpaid after his third year. Yeah. Here's Lamar in year five. He's played out his rookie. And he still can't get a contract done. And, and I just look mm, at the mm, culture mm. we've set up, and I'm talking about this is pervasive throughout. This isn't just a black issue. This, this worship of women, no one seems willing to say, Lamar, get your mama up out of this and, and hire you the best agent, Tom Condon, Todd yeah. France, somebody that, that, that's been doing these deals for 20 years. He needs an agent. I mean, I, I get everything you just laid out. The thing about an agent is they take the emotional side out of it. Mama's going to be fighting for her baby. Lamar is going to, man, they did me. This is an emotional thing. This is a business deal. You need an agent that deals with business all day. He's dealing with business deals, and he's going to market you in the best light. RG3 does not need to be Lamar's agent. (laughs) RG3 is the worst one to be talking about Mm -hmm. this for his game. But, uh, I mean, I think Lamar should get, he should get a nice, a real nice contract, but then I also would advise him to start marketing himself outside of the league. There's a cap on the money he's going to make on the league, but if he's doing commercials, et cetera, et cetera, go get you some sponsorship deals, make up that extra money. That's what the Tom Brady's do. That's what some of the great athletes have done throughout. Michael Jordan didn't make up half of what he got from the league. He made it from his endorsements, so go get your money elsewhere. Um, But, yeah, this whole letting – he needs an agent. Big time. Uh, Steve, I want to move on to another topic that uh, I don't think is being properly addressed. Uh, Tom Brady played horrible this season. Tom Brady played bad, horrible in the playoff game. Tom Brady created a lot of the dysfunction in Tampa with his 11-day Missing of training camp, not being all in, the, the conflict between he and Giselle, his personal life, finally caught up with him and damaged the football team. I've stated all that. We've talked about it the entire season. I've been highly critical of Tom Brady the entire season. However, having said all that, and I feel like he put the whole organization in a bad spot, did Todd Bowles handle that bad spot well enough that he should be given a, a second chance with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? This is the team that won a Super Bowl two years ago, I think won 12 games last year, and was a legitimate threat 
uh, to win the Super Bowl last year to now backing into the playoffs at eight and nine, getting embarrassed by the Dallas Cowboys. The offense was trash all year. The defense with Todd Bowles, especially, wasn't as good. Should Todd Bowles be taking more heat than he is, or is everybody just focusing everything on Tom Brady? Well, look, Brady was bad. Honestly, he looked like a prize fighter that no longer wanted to get hit. There were plays, multiple plays on Monday night, where he treated that football like a hot potato at the first sign of pressure. He was not even attempting to climb the pocket. And, and again, there was a lot of heat once they fell down two scores. And he was just ejecting out of plays. And I said, look, Tom, you're an all-time great. You're an admirable individual. But if that's the effort you're going to give, your heart and spirit is no longer in the game. But with that said, Todd Bowles was terrible. And he was really bad this game. Like, I'll, I'll admit it. I am not a football guy. I'm an observer. I've always admitted that. I'm a layman. But you know what? When I go to a restaurant, uh, if I get food poisoning or salmonella, I don't need to be a Michelin star rated chef to know that was a bad meal. And there's a great show from our guy, Coach JB and Sean Salisbury. It's called Last Chance Cube. And they actually broke down the all 22 of that defensive performance by the Buccaneers on Monday night. It confirmed what my eyes saw, which was a terrible defensive game plan and a lack of execution and bad concepts. It was that bad. When you watch this show, it really highlights how unorganized they were, how faulty their alignment was at times, and their usage of coverage, which was completely exploited by Kellen Moore. And it was a poor job of coaching. And at the end of the day, you ask yourself this, would this team have been better off with the leadership of Bruce Arians or Todd Bowles? In my opinion, Jason and Anthony, there's no doubt about it. They would have been much better off with Bruce Arians in charge this season. Well, that's on Tom Brady. He didn't want to work mm. with Bruce Arians yeah. anymore. And that, that's, that's mm. where all of this, a lot of this is on, on Tom Brady. And that's where I think the Buccaneers are showing grace towards uh, Todd Bowles because they, they know how difficult. I don't think he got the job until March. Remember, Brady was retiring, yeah. then he wasn't retiring, and the next thing you know, Bruce Arians got kicked upstairs, Bowles gets the job, doesn't does, inherits, keeps the same coaching staff that, that doesn't get to adjust anything, has his former boss hovering in the booth uh, uh, above him, and so it looks like, and not, not that there's any bad blood between Bruce Arians and, and Todd Bowles, because I, I just don't think there is, but, but I'm just wondering, though, with because here, here would be my position if I had to bet in 2023 who's going to have a better NFL season next year Tom Brady or Todd Bowles who would you if 46 year old Tom <laughs> would you rather have 46 year old Tom Brady next year or Todd Bowles as your head coach that's an easy one if Tom Brady goes to either the Niners or, let's say, the Raiders, it's Tom Brady. Because there, there's enough help there. We have to understand about the Bucs. They were a bad football team in a bad division. I mean, they were an 8-9 and nine playoff team. They were the shortest. They were the tallest of the midgets. They should not have been in the playoffs. And somehow they got a home playoff game because of these arcane 
um, National Football League rules. When you watch that team, Jason, two games really stood out that were national primetime games. It was the game that Dennis Allen and the Saints blew. They were up 16-3 with about eight minutes to go. And then you look at the Christmas night game against the Cardinals. They were down 10 points in the middle of the fourth quarter. I recall watching both games saying, man, this Buccaneer team is dead fish, a dead fish out of water. They were lifeless. Um, they were banged up, to be fair. But also, Jason, they had no team speed offensively. Uh, Julio Jones has lost a step and a half. He, if you look, if he was a great thoroughbred at one time, one of the very best receivers of this past generation, but if he was a horse, they'd be taking him to the glue factory. He had no juice left. Mike Evans was banged up for much of the year, as, as was Godwin. But they had no running game either. Jason, they threw the ball 66 times on Monday. And I get it that they fell behind, but they never, ever could ever establish the running game, which is the chicken or the egg. Did you not run the ball because you couldn't, or you didn't run the ball because you knew you were bad at it and you fell behind? But there were too many games this year, and I, uh, we pointed this out a few times, Jason, where when you look at the box score and you see any quarterback throwing the ball for more than 45 times, that generally means you are playing to lose the game. That is not a recipe. That is not a recipe for winning football. I actually think the Buccaneers, their greatest strength is being in that particular division. They have some nice defensive parts. But if I'm the Buccaneers, I actually just clean house and I start anew. Anthony, let me ask you this question. As one of the biggest Tennessee Titan homers that I know personally. <laughs> Would you want Tom Brady to be your quarterback no. in 23? No, 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 no. We don't have the line. We don't have the talent. We don't need the help. He's an old legend. He needs a whole lot of help, and we don't have the help for him. I love my Titans, but we don't have the – he needs uh, – as, as Tom he Brady needs, versus Ryan Tannehill next year. No. <laughs> then I might not get to watch. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, that's You put me in a bad spot. No, no. I wouldn't Jason. want time. I, I appreciate his legacy, but no, we don't have enough help for him. Jason, who Go is ahead, he throwing Steve. to? If he's with the Titans, <laughs> who is he throwing exactly. to? Exactly. Let, let, let me explain. Let oh, me God. explain. Let Here me explain. People love to play with Tom Brady. And Tom Brady isn't going to auction himself off for a bunch of money this offseason. So he's going to sign a cap-friendly deal that's going to allow you to go out and acquire some additional help. There will be a receiver or two that would love to play with Tom Brady. Fixing that offensive line may be a little harder, uh, and, and that's probably the strongest point. you got to yeah. put Brady behind. But, but He needs time. He needs he more does. time because he's older. But I, I'll say that Derrick Henry, man. Yeah. He, that's a lot of help, man. When you can play action pass with Derrick Henry, that's a lot of help. That's yeah. better than an offensive. That's better than a left tackle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I just think if Tom Brady on the right kind of contract with a couple of guys coming with him, could could make a difference for the Titans. You're trying to win me over. I'm still going to be a Titan fan. I'd still support them, but my expectation wouldn't be very very high because he's an old legend. He's going to need I mean he's going to need 
everything. He's going to need a couple of good receivers, not one. Yeah. He's going to need an awesome line because he needs more time. Now, look at what he's almost got the yips as a quarterback, as an Anthony, old legend. So he's going to need a I, whole lot of time. Yeah. Anthony, I couldn't agree with you more. If you're Tom Brady and you're on Let's Make a Deal and one curtain has Chris Henry and a bunch of Flotsam and Jetsam, while this curtain here has Devontae Adams, Derrick Hunter Henry. Renfro. Derrick Henry, uh, go ahead. Derrick Henry, okay, so, okay, that's them. But this curtain here in the silver and black has Devontae Adams, Hunter Renfro, Darren Waller, and you re-sign Josh Jacobs. Which one, which deal are you taking, Jason? Be honest. Which, as, as Tom Brady, which curtain, And Josh which McDaniels, the coach he's, yeah, coach he's familiar with, Josh right. McDaniels, yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. If it, those are your two choices, it's a no-brainer. Tom Brady with the Raiders. Mm, I had to the autumn wind. The uh, autumn same wind division as as Justin Herbert and Patrick mm. Mahomes. Yes. And Russell Wilson. Yeah. That would mm. be. That's a I lot of big names. I don't know about that. I don't know about yeah. that. <laughs> that's a big name, not a big game. <laughs> Russell weirdo. I'm not giving up on Russell Wilson. I Everybody am. else. Is. I am. I am. Uh, ironically, uh, finally, he has Steve. No I want to share. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, finally, I want to do an approval rating on uh, Dak Prescott. Play the uh, approval rating. So, Steve, uh, I think there's been a incredible overreaction to Dak Prescott's Monday Night Football performance. And, and I say that I felt very confident that the Cowboys were going to beat up on a bad Buccaneers team. I thought Dak would have a good game. He had a great game. I'm not knocking yeah. it. I think Dak is capable. He's shown that he can have great games. They embarrassed themselves the week before. There was pressure on him. He comes out, plays a great game. Hats off to Dak. Love him. Mm. However, <laughs> Dak's problem has always been consistency. It's always been a roller coaster ride, and I'm looking at people anoint Dak Prescott like, oh my God, he's back, and they're gonna win the Super Bowl, and you know, blah blah blah. And 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 I had to, I had to go as far as to agree with Joy Taylor on Speak for Yourself. What? Did you see what? that tweet I retweeted? Yeah, I had to, I had to go as far I saw that. as to agree wow. with Joy Taylor on Speak for Yourself. And I know you don't like Speak for Yourself anymore, but Joy made an excellent point. Let me go find it here. Oh, yeah. If the Dallas Cowboys standards are we win one game in the playoffs against an inferior opponent, then yes, they were cooking last night. If they are what everyone has been saying they are all season, which is Super Bowl contenders, then this was step one. Mm. I thought that was an excellent point by Joy Taylor. Uh, and so, anyway, I want to get to my approval rating on Dak, and we'll start with job performance which everybody's just through the moon. And I, it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He did what he's supposed to do. I, five touchdowns, love it. But I'm not going with a perfect score. He, got a, he gets a 21 from me in terms of job performance. Gentlemen, I thought uh, Troy Dackman played one of his best games ever because he was decisive <laughs> with the football. He was accurate, and he threw the ball on time for the most part. Um, and and it's not maybe a, a prisoner of the moment. But I'm going to give him a 25. It's still not easy to go on the road against what is still a pretty good defense. And it's not easy to run the ball inside with Vita Vea 
Uh, hey, hey, Steve, 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 but Steve, let, let, let me stop game. you for a moment. Steve, Steve, what? Steve, let what? me stop you for a moment. Because I, I, could we rewind the clock like five minutes ago? JB and Sean Salisbury showed you just how terrible that Buccaneers defense was yeah. in terms of alignment. It was sloppy. Right. And now, now, it's still a pretty good defense, did he? No, no, no. <laughs> what was it? Dak was a... No, no, they're not easy to run the ball on. They're not. But I'm just telling you, most of their... Oh, so you're crediting Dak with the running back. game. You're crediting... No. Dak. Well, no. Well, but <laughs> Tony Pollard should be the nucleus of this offense. I felt that way for a few weeks now. He, Tony Pollard, Steve, to me... could you just admit the, I'm right and I caught you slipping? No, because that'll never happen. I caught you slipping. <laughs> that, that happens about as often as the Haley's Comet coming around the corner. But Dak delivered the ball. He played the game. He stayed away from turnovers. And he did his job. I'm going to give him a 25. He played a really good game. But with the caveat, it's going to be much more difficult this upcoming Sunday. Uh, Anthony, you got an opinion on his job performance? 20. 20. 20. Yeah, you're right there. Okay, see, Anthony's right there with me. I like that. Uh, Character, I consider Dak a high-character guy. Dak, for the most part, you know, doesn't make excuses and, and... Struggle, fights through adversity. Very good leader. I give him a 22 in character. High character. Yeah, I've always thought he was a solid leader. He understood how it is to be, or what it is to be, a franchise quarterback, especially one that is under the microscope. The Dallas Cowboys are a top three franchise in all of American sports. They're right up there with the Yankees or anybody else that you care about. Uh, There's a lot of pressure, and especially with an owner that literally gives a press conference after each game. You're always going to be critiqued no matter what you do. I'm going to give him a solid 20 right there. Mm, solid. All right, uh, Anthony. 24. He, 20, has hand, he has handled the lights of Dallas, the expectations of it. He's handled it very, very well. 24. Ooh, 24. You sound a little, little optimistic. This is getting interesting. Authenticity. <laughs> I think it's hard to be authentic and be the Cowboys quarterback. I think that's a script that you just have to play that role as the Cowboys quarterback. Who, who knows what Dak is really like? All, you know, I, I find him relatively authentic. Uh, he's certainly been courageous in some of his positions. Yes. Uh, so I'll give him an 18 in the authenticity. Jason, I'm kind of with you. I went a little bit higher. I think a few years ago, and he took heat for actually supporting our blue, right? The people that protect us, the police. And, you know, that didn't play well in certain areas. And for that, I will give him a 20. Anthony? 20. 20. I I don't really know too much, but from what I've seen, pretty authentic guy. And then we'll get to it factor. Does Dak have it? Hmm. And he doesn't have it to me. What he has is that star on the side of his helmet, and that gives – I'd look good in the star. You know, my first football team in fourth grade was the Dallas Cowboys. I got the picture of me in my first game where my style Cowboys quarterback. I have it in fourth grade <laughs> just from wearing that Cowboys helmet. <laughs> That's all Dak's bringing to the table. I bring a lot more to the table. So I gave Dak a 12 in it factor. Jason, I want to see that picture. Look like, see if you look like a little miniature Nate Newton. But anyway, here's the thing. There's a lot of pressure. <laughs> but as of right now, Dak could really, really change the perception of what he is. But right now, he's Tan Romo. Um, he's won a playoff game against one of the worst playoff teams you're ever going to see. 
if he could march into Levi Stadium and beat what I think is maybe the best all-around roster in football and a team that's won, what, 11 straight? I'm going to go rocket ship with this rating. But as of right now, with the caveat, it could really raise exponentially within the next week or two. I'm giving him a 15. Dark Romo, according to uh, Steve Kim. It factor, Anthony. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's got a 10. I don't know which Dak is showing up. I don't know what the it is about Dak. Mm, see, uh, Anthony's got him at 74. I've got him at 73. Anthony and I have him at a grease fire. Steve Kim has Dak a smoke show. Steve, great job as always. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, that's Steve Kim. All right, make sure you get your tickets right now for Roll Call, the Roll Call event in, at Rockettown right here in Nashville, Tennessee on Saturday, April 15th, 2023. Go to FearlessArmyRollCall.com. Bearing witness requires courage, not perfection. Anthony Walker is going to be there speaking. TJ Moe, myself, Pastor Bobby Harrington, Delano Squires. We're bringing in some entertainment, some great food. It's going to be an awesome, inspiring event. I want to see you, meet you. I love getting the emails from those of you uh, that have already signed up. You're getting an email response back from me. We appreciate you coming and joining the Fearless Army, getting enlisted in the Fearless Army. We need you, you listener that hasn't signed up yet, you need to bring your butt to Nashville, Tennessee, and join us in being inspired and bearing witness to the truth, grace, and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to inspire each other to be better men in mid-April. want to see you there. All right, uh, we're going to move to Tennessee Harmony and Pastor Virgil Walker. Atheists, the secular world, the culture uses our imperfection, our sins to take. Shut up. You, you're, you can't stand on truth. And if all it was was imperfection, it eliminated us from standing on truth. This would be a very quiet place. I'm trying to be as loud as I can and as transparent as I can to try to inspire other men. We know you're imperfect. You know you're imperfect. God's grace and mercy, mercy gives you the right to stand on his truth and to speak that loudly into the culture. And we, we have to do that. You can look around and say, these guys have taken over everything. They own the CDC, the NIH, they got the president. Is transgender surgery for children? Colleges today are nothing but leftist indoctrination centers working fully against the Bible. What's the alternative? So you're gonna stop fighting today and you're gonna let the government raise your kids? And you're gonna turn around and let them chop off your 12-year-old daughter's breasts and let them sterilize your son and tell him that he's a girl? And you're gonna let them make the Bible hate speech? You're the last line of defense here because nobody else is gonna do it and God's gonna walk with you. This is literally worth dying for. Absolutely. I'm telling you, so it's like everybody, that's a nice little metaphor. This is it. If there's a hill to die on, this is it. The Overton window has been moved right in front of our children's bedrooms. And there are all types of people that are trying to climb up in the ladder. And every good father should be on his post so that when they peek their head up over the, the window sill, you kick the ladder back down, let them know, you, you move on to the other house because we're not playing that around here. Sometimes just standing up, just saying no, we're not going to do that. Not my marriage, not my kids, not my family, not my community, not my church, not my city. Just declaring that, 
that's victory enough in prepping his disciples. He tells Peter, he's like, listen, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. We're gonna face some ups and downs in life and we're not gonna always get it together. But if we stay on the path, if we stay chasing after, running after Jesus, running after his way, he's even praying for us. Now, I, I like it when you pray for me, Jason and TJ. I appreciate that, but to have Jesus pray for me, that makes me feel pretty good. When you make it through this sifting process, go back and strengthen your brothers. So we all have a responsibility as men. Once he's delivered me through this, I have a responsibility to go back and bring some other folk out. You do a roll call to just let people know you're not alone, be confident in your positions, and we're gonna inspire you. We're gonna eat, fellowship, listen to some music. It's gonna be the first of many roll calls that we do. So we're looking for soldiers. We're gonna put out our best uh, recruiting pitches for soldiers. Time for some uh, Tennessee Harmony with Pastor Anthony Walker and Pastor a uh, Virgil Walker. Anthony joining us live from Atlanta. Uh, Pastor Walker, Anthony, if you could get us rolling with a prayer. Father God, we're thankful for all that you've done for us, all the many blessings you've bestowed upon us. Father, we are humbled that we have the opportunity to share the gospel to all of mankind. Bless us as we discuss today. Bless the discussion and those who are hearers. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Virgil, get us rolling. You've written a critique of the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Monday was Dr. Martin Luther King Day across America. We talked football on Monday. I promised the audience that we would talk about uh, Dr. King this week in honor and recognition of his contribution. And then I read your piece. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, man, Virgil's tough. Virgil's good. Virgil gives you a lot to think about. I, I, I can't do proper justice to what you wrote. Uh, what's the truth about Martin Luther King Jr.? At one point, I, I'm just going to read this. So when you celebrate Martin Luther King Day, you are also honoring same-sex marriage gender-neutral pronouns, and so-called gender-affirming care for young girls, this too is the legacy of the movement. Unpa Take your time and walk us through your overall critique of Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Yeah, thanks so much, Jason, for the opportunity. I'm excited to do this piece as I was watching what took place over the course of you know, the last year with the midterm elections here in Georgia, uh, w watching uh, people like Stacey Abrams, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Jamal, um, oh gosh, uh, that pa Pastor, J Jamal, Pastor Bryant. Jamal, yeah, Jamal Bryant uh, and, and others talk about issues of same-sex marriage and abortion, uh, advocating pro-choice pro positions. Uh, you know, you have Raphael Warnock who calls himself a pro-choice pastor, 
I'm thinking, where, where did this come from? So that's kind of where the conversation began for me. And then uh, as I began looking backward, of course, Raphael Warnock is, is at the church that uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church is at the church that Dr. King came from. Uh, went back and looked at, at the legacy and, and just began thinking through some things. Uh, wanted to connect the dots. And so what I recognized was as I studied the life of King uh, and, and those who followed Dr. King, uh, that really what took place in the 60s uh, was the, the Overton window had shifted. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is initially there was a battle at work for uh, being treated equally. Uh, you know, leaders wanted to be treated equal. Uh, these were these were pro- provisions that were available to us, A, through the Constitution, and B, were, were part of the Declaration of Independence that said that all men were created equal uh, and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. But what, took, but what began to take place as voting rights were put into place, as protections for voting rights were put into place, was, was the movement shifted. I would argue that, that the first battle that took place in 1955 uh, with Rosa Parks uh, and, and, and what they did in the Montgomery bus boycott was an appropriate approach. Uh, to the issue of rights and civil rights. I think they missed some things regarding that, but I think that was an appropriate approach. By that, I mean that they tested the Constitution of the United States. And, and, and the Constitution of the United States held, and, and as a result, you get the desegregation of the buses. But what takes place thereafter is a push for civil rights. We get the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and what takes place there, what comes out of that act is, is not, not simply equal rights, but the, the bill is designed to provide equity of outcome uh, in that it, it, it provides the federal government with further uh, uh, resources. Uh, uh, they, begin to, they begin to put together committees uh, and organizations that begin to look very closely at what private citizens were, were doing in, in the way of their own business models. Uh, so you, you had, uh, for example, out of the Civil Rights Act comes the EEOC, uh, comes uh, things like affirmative action. And all of this is designed for the federal, federal government, not local jurisdictions, but for the federal government to begin examining the practices of private business owners. Now, the claim is, well, if they're, if they're doing business with the federal government, then the federal government in some way, shape or form has a right to take a closer look and assess what they're doing. The reality is, like all instances, most companies have a knee-jerk response in the same way that they're doing today with Black Lives Matter. That knee-jerk response is, well, we want to make sure that we don't ever have government looking at us, so we had better create these unique opportunities to hire blacks, again, through affirmative action, so that no one asks any questions. The problem with that is it doesn't provide parity. It doesn't provide, uh, it, it actually establishes sinful partiality uh, in an effort to make sure that, that, that weights and measures are equal. And really what they're after is not equality. It's, it's, it's equal. It's, uh, it's equality of outcome, equal outcomes. And that's problematic. Now, let me go back to the article. The way that I framed the article uh, as I witnessed this Overton window shifting was I, I wanted to make the case that the reason why it shifted and why I placed not, not the blame at the feet of King, but King was the person who started this movement. The reason why I said that is because I looked at his theology, I looked at his ideology, and I looked at his methodology. And, and when you examine those things alongside those who follow him, who followed him during that time, you begin to see the cracks uh, in the foundation of what King did in the way of, 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 of moving the issue of civil rights forward. 
in in our in our country right now, you can't say anything about uh, about King without getting blasted, right? You can't say anything about about pretty much anybody black without without getting blasted. I, I wanted to do an honest assessment of King, his life, and put it all in one article, in one piece, for people to think about and chew on. And I'll, I'll even give this as a as a caveat. I recognize where I landed. People might push back on, and I'm absolutely okay with that. But I, I, what I did was I, I made my case uh, throughout the piece before I landed where I did regarding the idea that, that the civil rights movement, which is what I, what I call the, 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 old, the old civil rights, and this new civil rights movement that includes the LGBTQ plus agenda with all of the transgender related issues, those two, th- there's a symbiotic relationship between the two that, that is more than just uh, borrowed ideas. Uh, it's not just that the new generation has borrowed the ideas. I want to I want to argue that these ideas were embedded in the process theologically, ideologically, and methodologically in King's and King's movement. So, there's a point in your article where you mention the social gospel and how King implemented that or embrace that early on in his theology or study of seminary school that it's a, help me out, it's a German, white, Jewish guy in the 1920s maybe. Unpack that for the audience. Yeah, yeah. King King went to Crozier Theological Seminary, which was a very liberal seminary, uh, and as a result, he was exposed to a lot of different philosophical ideas and opinions. Uh, theologically, he, he, he rejected uh, the, the deity of Christ. He rejected the resurrection of Christ. He rejected the virgin birth. He rejected a literal hell. And in the piece, I lay out not my ideas or my, or, you know, my, my thoughts about it. I actually go back to the, the writing that King did on those subjects so that you could see his writing for himself. Ideologically, he was aligned with a guy by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch. Walter Rauschenbusch was a man in late, late 1920s, uh, 1910, 1920s. This was a time when there was tremendous immigration that was taking place, uh, you know, in New York. He was actually a, a pastor in Hell's Kitchen, New York, and he was seeing all these immigrants come to land. Uh, as a result, in, in, in the great tradition of Judeo-Christian kindness, he wanted to help. Uh, he did so. Uh, the more and more he did that, and he began to see that the, the poor treatment of, of those who were coming over, he wanted to do more. And he wanted his religion to embrace an active step in doing that. Now, w- the problem with, Walt, uh, with Walter Rauschenbusch's process is we know that the gospel transforms. We who hold to an orthodox view of the scripture understand that the gospel transforms someone from the inside out. And what Rauschenbusch wanted to see happen was he wanted what he believed to transform from the outside with the hope that it would have a transformational inward approach. Uh, Ultimately, he would be deemed uh, a a heretic, uh, primarily because when he thought about the gospel of Jesus Christ, his idea was not that Jesus came to transform uh, hearts, but that Jesus came solely to transform society. And while I do believe, uh, and, and I know I know Dave Shannon and I have have some 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 challenges with this particular issue. While I do believe that society will be transformed by believers, the transformation takes place from the inside out, not simply the outside 
in. And so that's that's my view. And, and I, I leveraged uh, the fact that Rauschenbusch's ideas heavily impacted Dr. King. Here's the problem. Dr. King's theology was completely devoid of Christ and him crucified to begin with. So when you have someone who doesn't have a, a, a sound theology at all, and then he gravitates towards something that has a poor ideological framework, you have a train wreck mess in the making. And so that's what I argue in the piece. So I want to be clear here, help you don't have the piece right in front of you, I do. Uh, Rauschenbusch that you talk about, Virgil then quotes directly from Dr. King's own writing, where Dr. King says, I spent a great deal of time reading the works of the great social philosophers. I came early to Walter Rauschenbusch's Christianity and the Social Crisis, which left an indelible imprint on my thinking by giving me a theological basis for the social concern which had already grown up in me as a result of my early experiences. And then I think there at another point, you may have quoted Dr. King, was he writing to his wife or whatever? Yeah. Where he basically yeah. said he incorporated, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, basically what it was a letter that he wrote to Coretta Scott King before they were married. Uh, and and his, his pr- what he promoted was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he promoted was he wanted, he wanted her to know that the gospel that he would bring forward was one where there was a future, that there were no more wars, where there was a better redistribution of wealth, and where that brotherhood would transcend race and color. Now, out, outwardly, there's nothing wrong with those things. He said, though, this is the gospel that I will preach to the world. Now we have a problem. That's it. And the problem that we have is this is not the gospel that Jesus Christ preached. Right. This is not the gospel that Paul lays out. Paul lays out in first uh, 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 it's first Corinthians 15, three and four. He said, but I delivered to you that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And, and, and that, that Paul was one that was transformed by that gospel on the road to Damascus. His heart was transformed and changed. And out of that, he began to do things that had greater impact on the world around him. Rauschenbusch, in the same way, wanted to, wanted to see the world change outside in an effort to see hearts transformed as a result. That's a backward gospel. The other piece of it, it was with, with, with King, what's even more problematic is at least Rauschenbusch held to a, uh, a de- the deity of Christ. He held to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He held to the virgin birth. He held to a literal hell. Uh, King doesn't believe any of those things. And so his, his gospel is devoid of any good news. So he lays on the top of that, this ideology of, of, of really works-based righteousness. He views Jesus Christ as someone who has good moral character, someone whose example we should follow, but not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords from a standpoint of, of, God, of, of Jesus being the God-man, both God and man in the flesh. So I read your piece, and we've talked off air, we're talking on air, and it just really hammers home to me. I sit here today and say, man, how did we turn race into the religion? How did we turn, you know, again, 
something devoid or, or different than the Bible as the ultimate authority, the gospel. And again, as King basically saying, this is the gospel I want to preach. He, he's he's the most celebrated minister that I know in American history. And and he's in writing, admitting, acknowledging I got a different gospel I want to preach than than the Bible. And, and, and I'm like, well, this happened 60, 70 years ago. Things that I'm looking at today going like, oh, man, this just happened in the last five, 10 years where we've this racial idolatry and this race religion is the end all be all. And what you're helping me understand is, oh, Jason, this happened 60, 70 years ago. You're just looking at it fully bloomed right now. Am, am, do I have that right? That's exactly right. I mean, that, that, that's the point that the piece is making. And again, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with people arguing or saying, you know, you got it wrong uh, or you missed it. I, I don't believe that I have. Uh, I believe I've, I've put my finger on the very pulse of the beginning of this process. Now, th th is, is King marching for the transgender in 1960? No, he, he's not. But, but, but I definitely can make a case that his ideological framework and particularly his lack of orthodox theological framework would not be, would not see marching for tra for the transgender as something inappropriate or wrong and that and that we could do, he could do that on the basis of, of equal rights and really not simply equal rights in the in the in the piece I actually begin with the Obergefell decision and, and the reason I begin with that is because what's being argued for in, the, in, in Obergefell is not equal rights Everyone had the equal right to marry someone of another gender. We all had that equal right. What the Obergefell decision did was it said it wanted special rights. It wanted to reframe the definition of marriage so that, so that those who wanted to do something different than what everyone had an equal opportunity to do would enjoy the benefits of marriage. In the same way, the civil rights movement did exactly the same thing. Now, it began from a standpoint of we want equal rights. We want to equally we want to be able to ride on the bus with dignity without there being a problem. It went from that to special rights under under what became the civil rights movement, the civil rights bill of, of, uh, of 1964 and things moving forward. Now, if you listen to any pundits on television, they'll all go back to the civil rights bill of 64 and the voting rights act of the, of the, of the same of the same period. And so there's a reason they're doing that. Those bills, particularly the civil rights, the civil rights uh, act of 64 actually created and, and uh, Christopher Caldwell does a fantastic job uh, in, in his book of arguing that it established a second constitution, a different constitutional framework that everybody now operates under. It's it, these the, again. I, I write the piece. I recognize people are going to push back against it. My hope would be that they would at least consume it and give the ideas some thought and see where the pieces fit and where they don't. I feel very comfortable in what I put together. Anthony, hearing all that, how, when you're going through seminary school and when you've been serving as a minister the last 20 years or so, Dr. King, for someone like myself, has always been placed on a pedestal and kind of the gold standard for ministry was he viewed that way as you were going through seminary school? Or, or? 
He, he's, he's celebrated really amongst ministers because of his oratory skills. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at his sermons and his speeches, they are almost flawless as far as the impact, how well they're written. And so a lot of preachers, you know, they do like his, you know, his, his banter, his style, but it's really about his oratory skills. But from a theological perspective, there's not a lot of people that I know, and Virgil's bringing it out. There's not a lot of people I know that's really digging into his theology. There are other ministers celebrated for theology, but his oratory skills and his leadership skills as it relates to the movement is what he's celebrated as. And so you say not digging, are there people, are there a lot of people in the ministry that agree with what Virgil's arguing, that theologically he was flawed? They may not even know that when I say that they're not digging into his theology, I mean, they're not really studying. Virgil's made a very good point. If you looked in, in the, the piece about uh, him not believing in the resurrection, this was in Martin's own writing. Like he literally wrote that. So if you dug into what he really believed, we do know that he got a lot of his um, methodology from other sources. You know, you, you could look in method, if you look in the word and find, you know, Jesus does a lot, a lot of what God teaches us, he shows us how to do it. The problem is, for example, the whole idea of, you know, no more wars. That's a great idealistic perspective, but we're only going to see that in a place like heaven. We're not going to see that here because the gospel itself is going to bring about some division. Jesus says it's going to it's going to split some families, father and son, mother and daughter. It's going to split us up because we're going to believe things differently. You know, when we deal with where he's going later on, you know, you, you got to look at how does this the, the second group of people take this and run with it? They run with it because they picked up the package of the civil rights movement, the pattern, but not the principle. They were there and they're taking that and running with it. I hear your point about, uh, I want you to clarify your point about sure. the inevitability of war, basically. Yeah. Because the Bible basically and the gospel basically is going to create some division. And so you hear a lot of people say they criticize Christianity and religion. Look how many wars have been fought for religious purposes. Mm-hmm. War, I mean, the religion is bad. It creates war. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a good thing, but it's like if you have an understanding of biblical theology, it's like, Hey man, this is what goes along with supporting Jesus Christ and supporting there's supporting be truth. Supporting truth. Anytime you preach the truth, okay. Uh, one of the things that Stephen does uh, in the Book of Acts, he talks about what happened to the prophets of old. What happened to them when people got tired of he- hearing the truth? They wanted to kill the prophet because I don't want to hear that. That goes against our own lust. So when we preach the truth, at some point it's going to come in direct conflict with what the flesh and the majority wants to do. And even when one decides to obey the gospel, when we say I'm going to reject flesh and I'm going to follow the spirit of God, that stands in opposition to what the human nature desires to do. If you leave us to our own devices, we want to worship ourselves. We want to do whatever indulges our flesh. And so when we step against that, 
It's a war. Paul describes this in Galatians chapter five, around verse number 16. Even within our own person, there is a war, a battle between flesh and spirit. So you can't preach a gospel message. As far as what preachers are doing, we've got to be prepared when preaching a gospel message for opposition. It's coming. I can't I can't promise anybody, you know, a bed of roses of life when you follow Christ, even the message of Christ himself. He says, if you desire to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. That first portion Taking up your cross means you've got to embrace your death in this spiritual war. You got to embrace that just to follow Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the war part of it, it's inevitable if we follow Christ. Virgil. Yes, sir. I'm going to ask you to sit tight. I'm going to bring in a couple more people. Dave Shannon, Shamika, Delano into the conversation and then I'm going to circle back to you and get your final thoughts. I want you to marinate on this Virgil as as I talk to some others. (laughs) Dr. King, a good impact on American culture, on black people or a negative impact? Uh, We'll circle back to you, let you marinate on that for a minute. Dave Shannon, next. Bring in some chocolate knocks. Dave Shannon from Idaho, our Idaho potato. Dave, uh, welcome back to the show. I'm wondering if uh, you have some thoughts on Martin Luther King. I'm sure you do. We have not talked. I have no idea. Martin Luther King's pictures may be hanging all over your house as far as I know. Uh, (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) But anyway... What are your thoughts on uh, Dr. King and his legacy? Virgil has a very provocative uh, column he's written. Uh, wanted some different thoughts on Dr. King. And, and d- does your family, do your kids celebrate, honor MLK Day? What are your thoughts? Well, I am actually with my family gathering a group of other people to go down to G3 and to riot against Virgil Walker for writing this article. He knows not who he's talking about. He's touched the Holy One and he will be flogged in public at least 39 times, according to the scriptures, until he repents of all his sins. So that's where I stand on the issue. Jason, have a great day. Talk to you later. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just in case I just wanted that there just in case. Some people start to get upset about this article and want to come after Virgil. Uh, you're on your own, bro. Uh, I think Virgil did a great job with this, Jason. <laughs> he, he really did. He talked about the three things. And I want to add a fourth one to it. He talked about uh, King's methodology. He talked about his uh, theology. And he talked about his ideology. And I want to add a fourth one in there. I want to talk about his cosmology. Because what all those things come together to do is to form a way in which you view the world. And one of the things that uh, Dr. King did was have a very, very poor cosmology. He thought that the world wasn't the kind of place that God made it. He thought that a virgin couldn't bear 
a child. And he also thought that you couldn't come back from the dead and, and be raised from the dead after three days. He didn't believe in the kind of world that God had made. And when you don't believe in that kind of world, you operate with other forms of principles. You start believing in, in a Machiavellian type of world where power is all gathered in one particular place. And the only way for you to be able to control the world is by grasping for that type of power. He thought that that's where the government had all the power and he needed to be able to grasp for that power there. Had he thought that the virgin birth could be real and that Jesus could be raised from the dead, he would have understood that when Christ came into the world, he didn't come as the president. He didn't come as a king. He came as a lowly child to restore man back to his rightful place as ruler over the planet. And if King understood that and he understood the order of creation, then he would have understood that the authority and the power comes from the family. He would have never, ever cheated on his wife. And he would have had those affairs. He would have put all of his power and his attention to restoring his family and building out strong families because he understands that how God changes and transforms the world. When God wanted to change the world, he did it through a child coming into the world. And so the, when you have a different cosmology, you function and operate off of that cosmology. And what Virgil did in his article is just reveal that King's cosmology was probably the most dangerous thing, because while a lot of us will reject King's theology, his methodology, even in some places, or even um, his uh, uh, um, ideology. Thank you. I forgot the last one. Ideology. Forget. We'll, we'll actually embrace his cosmology and we'll act as if the only way for us to make change in the world is by getting the reins of government. We are sharing the same sort of cosmology as King and as people who are trying to do the same thing. Like Virgil was talking about with the um, uh, 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 the Marriage Act and uh, the uh, Obergefell. Obergefell is the same type of thing where you're looking to the government, you're looking to gather power all in one place to be able to force your world, your will on people. That's not how Jesus operated. This is what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying that I don't engage this world. He's like, he's saying that the way that I choose to operate is I'm operating in the way that God really made the world. The power is in death and resurrection, giving yourself for people, understand the foundations of family and how it operates in society and impacts society. And so the thing that Virgil really exposed was the cosmology that King had. And we need to check ourselves to make sure that we understand that our cosmology really should be that that thinking that our families are like nuclear power plants that are sending out energy and power to the rest of society to operate. And when we understand that, then society looks a lot different. And so the outcome of King and having a bad cosmology destroys and breaks the foundations of the family. Black family is in ruins right now after the supposed leadership of, of King. I think he's responsible for a lot of that because he gave us and showed us a cosmology that was unbiblical. Dave, I'm so glad I had you. <laughs> you just crystallized virtually everything. And, mm. and some... Everything that I believe, everything that this show is about, you just help my foundational beliefs and mm. and help my understanding, help help further the epiphany. In turn, y'all seen me talk about it. 
on, on this show when I confess and repent and to say, like my whole worldview was just jacked. In and you know, in terms of how I, the importance of starting my own family, I, I put that behind acquiring wealth and power and, and you know, getting to be my age and realizing like, holy cow, what a mistake I've made. I didn't understand where the real power was and trying to figure out how did I get here? How, did, how was I raised in the church? How was Lovey Kennedy such an influence on me, my grandmother, and I could still make all of these mistakes and, and not make an excuse, it's all my fault, but I, I'm someone that even as a very young child, I used to have dreams as a young child, as a, we lived on 38th and Grand Boulevard or Grand Avenue in Indianapolis. I can't remember if it was a Grand Boulevard or Avenue. My mother will be watching, she'll correct me. But as a six, seven-year-old kid, I remember walking down the street dreaming about being the next Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. And, and, and not understanding that worldview that I was adopting and, and how popularity, money, political power, all of that is being prioritized in my thinking as opposed to where the real power in, God, in God's eyes and plans and what could really change the world is actually in family. I, I gotta say, between you and Virgil, that, that picture, <laughs> it, it won't be here long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> y'all have y'all opening my eyes. You have anything else you want to add today? I just want to say that in the type of worldview where you understand where the power source really is, it really changes what you think is significant and insignificant. Now, all of a sudden, when you come onto a biblical cosmology and you put the source back into the family, changing diapers becomes a magnificent thing and the most impactful thing because you do it now knowing that God is gonna bless the small things. Nothing is insignificant anymore. When you understand where the real power is, it's not in that of Washington, it's not in that of politics, it's in the power of being faithful to your wife and loving your children. Be the kind of person, be the kind of man where your children say, man, I love that guy. He was the best dad in the world and I wanna be just like him. I wanna be a father like him. Make fatherhood great again and make doing things that seem minuscule um, very powerful. When your wife is making you a, a meal and she's taking care of your kids and all the small things, cutting the grass has a value to of it all of a sudden because you're living faithful in the small things and you remember that God blesses those things and those things are the things that change the world at the end of the day. Anthony, you got anything you can add to that? Ooh, um, Dave has doubled down even behind Virgil. Um, I would say this with, with Dr. King, you know, you may, you may be able to keep it up based on the contribution that he made. Now, I wouldn't follow everything that Dr. King did, but some of the things that he put out, some of the things that he put out made a contribution. Yeah, I, as with any other, as with any other man. Picture. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna make room for somebody else. Uh, Booker T, uh, we'll be looking for. There you go. That's it. <laughs> Pictures of Booker T. Washington. Let's go, Booker T. Uh, you'll be joined. Yeah, uh, Dave. Thank you. 
Great job. Uh, get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Delano Squires, we'll get a little smarter. Next. Welcome back. All right, uh, we're going to roll out to Washington, D.C., get a little smarter, bring in Delano Squires. Delano, I'm sure you've read and you heard uh, Virgil's pretty, you got to call it a harsh take on Dr. Mm. King's legacy. He, he's written this for G3 Ministries. Virgil is uh, quite, Virgil's like a, a, a mini version of me. And I say that uh, very complimentary. I'm saying he's half my size. Uh, <laughs> but man, he's got all my vigor and contrarian thinking or whatever, but you have a different take. Virgil kind of focused in on, uh, you know, the legacy of, of, of Dr. King and what we should think of that. You have a take on his legacy in terms of how the successors to Dr. King handled, uh, you know, his legacy and impact. Unpack what you wrote in, in your column today. Sure, Jason. Um, f for me, um, the, the biggest thing that I, that I see is how um, Dr. King's successors have basically ushered in an era of white flight in the black leadership class. And when I say that, what I mean is the black leaders of today are much more interested in changing the hearts and minds of, of white liberals in Napa Valley or Silicon Valley, for that matter, than they are of their black constituents in, in Compton or Los Angeles. Um, and what I did in my piece is, is to say, look, I understand why, why Dr. King focused on changing the hearts and minds of white liberals and moderates in, in the 1960s, because again, that was a, a totally different world, right? Where segregation was legal, where um, extrajudicial killings, whether of Emmett Smith or, uh, excuse me, Emmett Till, excuse me, or um, you know, civil rights workers were things that, you know, even if you had the evidence, uh, a conviction by an all-white jury in the Deep South was certainly not a guaranteed outcome. So, so I understood why he took the positions that he took. But what I say in the piece is that the people who try to lay claim to his mantle, that see, see themselves as uh, his rightful heirs, turned a tactic and made it into an identity. And now all they do is talk to um, the white community because th that is the group that they lead. They, they lead white liberals and, and some white moderates. Uh, so I would argue in many respects um, that we don't really have a black leadership class because uh, the aristocracy, is, as you know, I call them, the, the politicians, the pundits, the professors, the preachers and the performers, they spend all of their time, their energy, their passion, their vigor trying to get white people to change, to be better, to read different books, to live in different places, to buy different products, to say certain words. Um, and none of that time and energy is really uh, used and focused on getting black folk to change anything about what we do. And the minute somebody suggests that we change something that we do, that maybe we should not promote murder and, and mayhem in our music, that person gets accused of trying to prop up white supremacy. So 
Uh, I, I understand the, some of the critiques of Dr. King, certainly of his theology. I think the, uh, anyone on that sort of theological ground is, is much more solid than someone in terms of his uh, political and social legacy. But I'm much more interested in the people who are here today and how they have mismanaged um, the black community. And I said towards the end of the piece, if silence is really violence, then the aristocracy should be brought up on on felony abuse and neglect charges. And, and that's something that I'll stand by. So what you're describing sounds to me antithetical to Christianity. When, Delano, when I think of being a Christian, I think about the man in the mirror and improving myself. And and we've there was a time that I think you're describing accurately when as black people in America, we had virtually no power. Uh, and, and so it was appropriate to say, hey, we need you all to surrender some power and let us have some control of our destiny, destiny and agency. But but it, it sounds like we've the successors have moved into this deal where we're pretending like we still have no power mm. and we're not responsible for our own destiny. And so the, the improvement, the care for the managing of white people is paramount to the success of black people. And I, I just I just don't think that's true anymore. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, and, and this is always the, diff the difficulty with trying to evaluate, you know, Dr. King's legacy is that there's a temptation for people. And, and I've seen this, you know, even in sort of non-religious conservatives, they will read his words in 1965 and say, see, oh, he's no different than the BLM protesters in 2020 without acknowledging that he, he lived in a totally different world, right? So one of the things that, that is apparent to me, to, to your point, is that um, there is no real sort of self-reflection anymore. And, and in some respects, I understand it. Um, it is a lot easier for a black, you know, diversity, inclusion, and equity consultant, a, a diet, a diet consultant, um, or someone in, in, you know, in the field of anti-racism, or, or you know, the Ibram Kendi types. It's much easier to wag a finger at white folk. One, they have a lot of guilt, and they need to do something with it. I'm talking particularly the white liberals, the 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 latte liberals that that I talked about in the piece. And two, those people are willing to pay you money for you to talk bad about them, right, publicly. I mentioned Race to Dinner, which, which is a company that was started by a black woman and, a, and an Indian woman of South Asian descent. And white liberal women pay these two people about $2,500 to come out. The women pay, pay them, they host a dinner, they get their white liberal friends around, and then the, the two women, um, uh, Sarah Rao and, and I think the other one's named Regina Jackson basically unload on them for a couple of hours and tell them how racist they are and they're upholding white supremacy and systemic racism so on and so forth I mean it's a it's a great racket and it's a lot easier to do that and much more lucrative to do that than to be the type of person who will show up at the BET awards and let's say you 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 won you know an award for some for something you know something that you've done in your career and say what has BET come to? Why is it that we promote murder and degradation and, and self-destruction on our airwaves? Why is it that black rappers apologize for saying that their money is kosher because they think they may have offended the Jewish community? 
but we reward them for talking about how many bodies they've dropped in Atlanta or New Orleans or Chicago. Why do we do that, fellow, you know, black folk in the audience? Um, that's, that's a much tougher sell because you're going to lose cultural capital. You're going to get called a Tom and a coon and a sellout. Um, so I, I think the path of least resistance is to go for the money and, and go where um, there are people who, who want to spend it basically to, to buy favor, um, the same way Catholics used to pay indulgences, right? Um, they, the, the, the guilty white liberals need to get rid of this, this uh, guilt that they have, and they found a willing partner um, in, in the black anti-racism class. Delano, what do, you, what do you think of Virgil's contention? And this is from conversations we had earlier with Virgil and conversations I've had in private with Virgil and having read his piece and talked with him. His contention is that uh, Dr. King and the civil rights movement uh, were misguided and uh, were, were like he, he, he made the point in our conversations about the, the, the Selma boycott or the bus boycott was a proper reaction to how the bus, uh, how the busing system was treating us. And, and we had the proper reaction of like, we basically started Uber among black mm. people and circulated the money among black people. And that strike went on for a year. And so the salute, that was always the solution. Well, they don't want to uh, let us ride where we want to ride on the bus and the system's not for us. Start your own system rather than, no, we're going to force you to change your system so we can continue to pay you and make you money. And, and so th there can be a debate about, did Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, did they know what they were doing? Or was this some sort of unintended consequence of basically training black people to, no, being a dogged fight to give your money to white people that don't like you and set up systems that don't service you. Equ true equality is give, having the right to give those people their money to go sit at their lunch counters and pay for their kids to go through college than to sit at your own lunch counter and pay your people in your neighborhood for their kids to go to college. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting contention, um, and, and I understand the point that Virgil is making. Um, I, I disagree with it for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, well, first let me say this. Um, I'll agree with the point that throughout history, you can, you can see different ethnic minorities across the globe who have thrived economically in the face of, you know, sometimes overt hatred and discrimination, right? So. Um, you, you see that in, in Asia where, where, you know, ethnic Chinese populations move into different countries and set up industry. Um, you had, you know, uh, South Asians or so Indians who lived in Uganda and, you know, they, they ran, you know, different industries until they got kicked out of the country by Idi Amin. So it's, it's possible, possible to be a hated ethnic minority in a country and, and to still thrive, right? So that, that is a possibility. What makes it challenging is that our nation is one in which our our creeds say that all men created equal and our laws say that that is how we should be treated. So when you're in a position where um, you have a particular ethnic group that as a matter of law, custom and social norm 
is relegated to second class citizen status, um, is it possible for them to, to sort of maneuver around that economically? Sure, it is. And then I think, you know, and I'm sure Verge would, would agree with this, that is much of the history of, of black America, you know, from emancipation up until up through the 1960s, right? We had insurance businesses and hotels and restaurants and so on and so forth. So it's not to say that we couldn't thrive during um, um, segregation. Uh, my argument is that thriving is not a justification to keep segregation in place. And what black folk did and continue to do with freedom is on us. Right. It's it's the same. Even though I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a, you know, a reparation supporter, per se, um, one of the arguments that I find weakest is that, oh, you shouldn't do rep- we, the United States government shouldn't give black folk reparations, because if they did, then we were just going to blow the money on on cars and jewels and liquor and women. I mean, that's possible. That's quite possible. I don't know. But. Um, to withhold something that someone feels is owed to them because of how they may misuse that thing um, is patronizing and paternalistic. And ultimately, it's, it's up to us to decide how we want to deal with freedom. Because in some respects, it is actually easier to be oppressed and in bondage because all of your direction comes externally. But when you have to be self-directed, um, that presents a, a number of different challenges. And, and I think certainly as it relates to, to um, emancipation from slavery, I think black folk handled that freedom as well as anyone could have been expected to. But um, since the 1960s, I, I would agree to this extent with Virgil that I, I think in many respects we've mishandled it. And not only that, and I know further in his piece, uh, part of his critique is that other groups have appropriated the civil rights movement's tactics to push for quote unquote rights that now are in, in many respects making it harder for Bible believing Christians to use scripture to articulate their beliefs in the same way that they believe Dr. King did. Um, so th- th- there's a lot going on there. One thing that I try not to do is to speak for dead men. I don't know where Dr. King would have ended up in terms of his social views or his political stances. I mean, Eldridge Cleaver, who was one of the most prominent Black Panthers, you know, went from a radical in the 1960s to a, re- a conservative Republican in the 1980s. So I- I'm not sure. Um, but what I can say is I know that s- certain groups have appropriated the playbook that the civil rights movement had uh, and have used it to advance their own cause for quote unquote rights. Um, I don't necessarily lay that on Dr. King's feet um, because it's hard for me to imagine that a black minister in the 1960s was doing things that he felt were advancing the communities from which he came and said to himself, I think this is going to one day lead to transgenderism. I have a hard time believing that. (laughs) Right. I have a very hard time believing that. And there's a difference between me teaching my children what to do and them doing it and it and it being sort of a ne- having a negative impact and me teaching my kids the right things to do and then they use those tools that they've gotten from me rightfully and end up using it for the wrong purpose those two things are not the same in, in my book i'm gonna let virgil respond to that at the end of the show but I, okay. I, if i had to predict his 
his his response, it's going to land somewhere along the line of if you move off this firm biblical foundation, if you manipulate the gospel, the scripture, the verses uh, and, and attach it to some social gospel created by some white Jewish dude in Germany, don't be shocked that the ramifications down the road don't lead to a, a, a sound fundamental conclusion that fits a biblical worldview. You played with the truth at the beginning and so d don't pretend that the transgenderism came out of that uh, won't surprise Virgil. That's just my prediction, but we'll hear from Virgil. Uh, Delano, <laughs> thank you so much for the time. Thank you, guys. Uh, you got a prediction on where Virgil may end up on? <laughs> you, you hit it. I, that's probably where he's going to go. <laughs> All right. Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit notifications. Hit subscribe. Shamika Michelle. X. Welcome back to Royal Arts, North Carolina. Bring in Shamika Michelle. Shamika, I, I, I pointed Shamika a different direction. Oh my God, what do you got going on, Shamika? Yeah, you know, what? you have to wait until tomorrow or next week to see hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, I, yesterday I, was, uh, I went to Straightway Ministries their compound in Lafayette, Tennessee. So I saw a lot of women in head wraps yesterday and I was like, you an Israelite now? Is that <laughs> you know, I just I just shampooed my hair yesterday and so it normally takes like a day or two to kind of set the way I want it to. So here I am. <laughs> gotcha. All right. All right. So I I, I sent Shamika a little different direction. And and by the way, I will do want to mention this. Say what you want about the guys at Straightway, but Lord have mercy, can their wives cook? I had some of the best mm. food. <laughs> Somebody made some spinach and it was off the charts. Anyway, I'll talk about that later. Uh, but I sent Shamika a different direction as it relates to uh, Dr. King. Have you guys seen this statue that they made in Boston? Have you seen this, Anthony? I've seen it. This statue, I, I, I think, if we have a picture of it, uh, yeah, th this is allegedly a statue honoring Dr. King and Coretta Scott King. They're headless or whatever. And, and I just, what are we do going, what are we doing with these statues? Are we turning Dr. King into a punchline? What are your thoughts on Dr. King and the, the statues and just, there were some crazy memes going on about this. Yes, this is like the first time erect and statue should not be used in the same sentence. Um, you know, when I first saw that they had unveiled this statue, I was looking on my phone. And so for me, I thought maybe I need to get a bigger picture. So I got on my laptop and start pulling up the stories. And I was thinking something must be wrong with me because I didn't see Martin Luther King at all. I saw you know, they they called it an embrace. I thought it was an embrace too. A thigh 
over the the head of a man is the type of embrace it looks, you know. And I was thinking, if this is what Dr. King is pushing now, his legacy, I'm down like four flats because I saw something totally different than what I was supposed to see. And I was worried, Jason, because there's this scripture and I'm paraphrasing that's like to the pure at heart, all things are pure. And so I was thinking my heart must not be pure at all. And I was I was saying to myself, I'm reminiscing. I'm about to send a text, a Jodeci uh, text, like every time I close my eyes, because that's all I could see. And I was so grateful to then see that I was not the only person that saw something different with this statue, because maybe the man I'm sure the man meant well, but this just did not come all right at all it not quite right at all <laughs> it, it it certainly didn't i saw someone sent me or it showed up on my twitter feed a meme from uh the movie baby boy where ving rames had uh <laughs> what tyrese i think yeah. was the actor in a headlock and maybe that's what they were depicting and, and <laughs> That actually, I, I mean, the other one I thought of, I, no one sent me a meme on this, but I was like, is this, is this uh, Steven from Django putting Leonard DiCaprio in a headlock? Maybe that's what the, what the deal is. Remember there's that famous, everybody sends it out. But people were having a lot of fun uh, with this statue. If I was the city of Boston, and I'm sure this cost them several million dollars, you got to bring that down. This is embarrassing. That's an eyesore. How, who would walk up some stranger to your city right. and know what they're depicting? Right, right. Art is supposed to invoke a conversation, but that conversation distracts from what we're actually supposed to be looking at. We don't know what it is. It, it, and, and so there's, all, there's a lot of famous pictures of Dr. King. Yeah. The picture of him hugging his wife is yes. not a picture that I think immediately pops to people's mind. But it would have been, if as an artist, why not make that whole statue? Yeah. Now you've got, this what Jason would really love that, because you've got black man and woman embracing love. Yeah. Wow. But if yeah. you take their heads off and just try to capture the embrace, you take away from the conversation. All right, so Shamika, I just kind of wanted you to lighten the conversation because we've been so heavy with Virgil. Uh, yes. I appreciate that. Do you, I'll give you a final thought if you have one. If not, I'll see you tomorrow. Well, no, I just wanted to say I've enjoyed both Virgil and Delano. I heard someone say that Dr. King and the civil rights movement took us from a trying people to a crying people. And it definitely seems like we've been crying and begging ever since. So, yeah, that's where I mm. stand. All right. So she said, Delano, she meant Dave Shannon. Thank you, Jamaica. Uh, go to fearlessblazetv.com. Go to blazetv.com slash fearless. I'm sorry. Use the promo code fearless, and you can save $10 on your yearly subscription. Uh, we'll circle back to Virgil Walker. At I just
right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to give Virgil the final say on a very fascinating discussion we've been having for about the last hour. Virgil started us off. I told Virgil at the end of that, I would ask him, Dr. King, should I leave his picture up here in the studio or do I have to acknowledge that perhaps he wasn't the positive influence uh, that I thought he was? Virgil, did, did Dr. King do more harm than good? Yeah, I, I, I think my piece makes the case, I think more harm than good. Um, I, I would I would land there uh, primarily because of uh, where he led and, and what the, the outcomes we see thereafter. Uh, I will say this. Um, I, I think there's a way uh, and, and, and this is probably where Pastor Anthony, he, I, I mean, he's there. He can speak for himself. Probably where pa Pastor Anthony and, and probably a lot of folks land with King, uh, which is a and, and Pastor Anthony mentioned it up front. Uh, I don't know a better a better American orator uh, than Dr. King, especially modern day. Uh, his his skill in oratory was phenomenal. Uh, there there are there are college courses or classes that study how King did what he did, how he put together uh, some of the ideas that he put together, the as, as well as his elocution. So I, I give I grant all of that. Uh, my argument is simply while we while we do that and while we celebrate that and the king and, and the good things that he did, we also have to be willing to examine the flaws. Uh, and, and Pastor Anthony mentioned up front a lot of what I wrote in my piece. Very few people even really know uh, about. Uh, and, and the reason is because of the revisionist history that we that we've given the king. He's he's all but deity to most people. Uh, and, uh, and and we, we, we deify him and no one can speak a word against him. So while I would, I, while, I, you know, as, as far as keeping the picture up, I'd say take that down and go get Booker T. Washington. Uh, that would probably be a better, a better look that, that's in line with your worldview. Booker T. Washington, one of the things that he, he said was, you know, you want to, you want to plant your bucket here. And his idea behind taking a bucket and planting it where, where it is, is here's where I'm planted. Let me make the most of it. Not, I'm not even coming right out of right out of reconstruction. He was telling black people, don't go looking for what the government can give you or hand you. Be so self-sufficient uh, that you're required by others. His, his, the color of, of what he was trying to do was green. He wanted to make sure that we did so well for ourselves that others would would want what we had, would want the goods, the services, all of the resources that we had. And that's that's that was one of the ways that he built Tuskegee. I mean, that that was that was the model that he used to build it. And it was at a much earlier time when segregation was even more steeped and people were coming out of abject poverty from from slavery. Uh, I would commend his book to everyone for everyone to read up from slavery. There's there's no better treatise that you can read uh, than that book to see how he went from slavery to where he's providing uh, insight to the president of the United States. That's a that's a that's a journey. Uh, that's those are the kinds of things that we should be familiar with. I, I don't disrespect King. I'm grateful for what he did. I, I mentioned to you, Jason, that one of the things that he did well uh, was the first uh, the, the first portion of the civil rights movement uh, with with the uh, with the with the with the bus the Birmingham the, the buses in Birmingham. I, th I thought he did a fantastic job there. I think we just went I, I think we just went to the left after we got uh, in, uh, political power, uh, we got uh, notoriety uh, and and began to look for what government could do for us rather than what we could do for ourselves. Virgil and I talked off air a day or two ago, 
and and basically you made the analogy that <clears throat> the Montgomery bus boycott basically led to black people starting the original Uber service yeah. and circulating that money amongst themselves. And that boycott went on for more than a year. And, and the, the lesson to be learned was like, don't be dependent on the bus system, depend on yourself, recirculate circulate that money within your community. I shared with Virgil that my grandfather on my father's side, uh, he was a gypsy cab driver. That's how he supported himself. And, and that is from that tradition of like, oh, the cab services when he was growing up were discriminatory against black people, wouldn't come to our neighborhoods. And so we had gypsy cab services owned by friends of my mother and my, my grandfather on that side worked for uh, as a gypsy cab, as part of a syndicate of gypsy cab drivers in Indianapolis. And these, they make good money and, and use those funds among their community and, and helped each other. And so Dr. King's legacy and the civil rights legacy really helped prioritize that integration is the end all be all, not self-sufficiency. Right. And that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, I don't have any problem with integration or white people or whatever, but self-sufficiency <laughs> is my priority and what's most important. And it's funny, I, I reference Booker T. Washington more than I do anybody. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. particularly in comparison to Dr. King, but I've just kind of followed in, followed, followed the rest of the world. And, and, you know, Dr. King has been put, placed on a pedestal and I'm right there with everybody else. And, and we've all kind of fallen in that. And he's been set up as the ex example for everybody and, and has taught everybody to pursue integration. And the closer we are to white people, uh, the happier you will be. It's a mistake. I, I will. I'll say this. Uh, uh, I, I'll add this uh, uh, to the conversation as well. I, I heard Delano talk about the, you know, the idea of, of the culture that we live in. He, he, his pushback was, we live in a society that that is integrated, and so that we can't avoid that. And so I want to, I want to state very clearly and plainly uh, that that the object of that process was not an effort to segregate or to maintain segregation. Uh, it was an, an effort to be self-sufficient so that when integration takes place, the integration takes place from a from a standpoint of of, of a power dynamic that's that that is that is one where equals are meeting together. Uh, you have something I need. I have something you need. And now we operate from a standpoint of mutual respect for one another because we we, we both have so, uh, there's both there's, there's a mutual benefit in our interaction rather than the opposite way. And, and that's that's what was done with with the with the bus boycott. What what then took place thereafter with the sit-ins, I mean, you're showing up on and someone else's uh, uh, eating establishment, uh, hoping to get thrown out to show up, to, 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 to have a ruckus take place so that you can expose the fact that they're segregated. Uh, I mean, that, 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 that may have its place and, and it obviously did in that time. And we see that kind of behavior in our current day. Wouldn't it have been better to have such great restaurants that white folks wanted to come eat where we were? Or, or that we had a, the economic wherewithal to, to find where we wanted to move to and, and make things established in, in those places and spaces. And th those are the kinds of ideas that I think from a, from a methodological standpoint 
are things that we need to consider. I love what Dave Shannon did uh, with, with, with establishing kind of an overarching cosmology. Uh, you, you can also turn that biblical worldview uh, that from a, from a step, what, what, what formulated King's biblical worldview were the things that we talked about, his theology, his ideology, his methodology, when that is fractured, uh, you begin to look to, to God in different ways and places. And so what begins to happen is government now becomes the catalyst for, for replacing what you don't believe you've gotten either from God alone or from, from the help that you can get from him. Uh, and you're looking for government to validate you in ways that I believe are unbiblical and, and inappropriate. Virgil, thank you yes. so much. Fantastic show. I'm going to have a final thought here and then we'll play some tomorrow and, and get out of here. I, I, I want to be clear with the audience about my thoughts on <clears throat> integration and, and just because I'm not I'm not pro segregation either. What what has frustrated me at my age now is all I'm looking for are partnerships based on shared values. I could care less about <clears throat> anyone's skin color? Do they share my values? And, and that's what I think we've been robbed of. And it, it would be better, it would have been better for us to establish self-sufficiency and then integrate or engage with people who share our values. And, and, and now as a religious person or a Christian as someone that believes Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, I'm looking at us be separated be over our lack of shared values. As, 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 as we have, black people have tried to integrate with liberal white people, in order to do that, you have to shake off your Christian values to integrate with them. You have to prioritize abortion and a bunch of other things, transgenderism, the whole LGBTQ movement in order to integrate with that group. And, 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 I, and I don't say that with any disdain for that group, because but I've seen what they've done to me because there's some biblical values I will never abandon. And so I've seen liberal white friends of mine abandon me because of my values, my biblical values. Oh, you're not down with the LGBTQ? You believe in pro-life? Uh, you don't believe in Black Lives Matter? Nah, because the Bible's clear. BLM's not anywhere in the Bible. Pretty much teach all lives matter. And, and so, I just I can't integrate or, or stay in long term relationships with people that are that hostile to my biblical worldview. And, and so our whole system of integration or whatever, it's all just out of whack. We're not doing it from a position of self-sufficiency and we're not doing it from a position of shared values. It's it's and and <clears throat> this week and reading Virgil's piece and having the conversations with Virgil and just having this conversation today has really helped crystallize for me 
some of the downside of, of things that I've just accepted as, you know, I've gone along with the world and uh, everything the civil rights movement was for and about and it was great. I, I'd, it, this has been an eye-opening show and week for me. Uh, I actually like today's show better than yesterday's show. And I love yesterday's show about <laughs> COVID or whatever, but today's conversation was awesome and exciting. I hope you enjoyed it as well. We'll play some harmony and we'll see you tomorrow. So divided, stop fighting and stand tall. We used to be a nation, one united. Now we're headed for downfall. God let your light shine down. What we need more than anything. Tell us, cause together we're so much stronger. God, let your light shine down. What we need more than anything now. Harmony. Let's make a simple vow. Let's come together now. Harmony. Put all your weapons down. Get to me Open up your eyes and see 